Good afternoon on this 1st of April and welcome back to Dark Histories from the Secret University. Time now for the second of T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets, East Coker. But before we hear the poem, you may well know that these four interlinked long poems are particularly a meditation on time. And I've had a strange week writing about the atrocious right-wing phenomenon in the UK known as Brexit. And yet been fortunate to remember at the same time a kind of interwoven carpet of human people and their adventures throughout time. And perhaps nothing symbolises this better than the beautiful old edition of East Coker and of all the separate four quartets which I inherited from my late great friend Elizabeth Hudson after she died uh, after a long and remarkable life in 2008. I'm holding that in my hand now and when she was holding it in her hand it was 1940. The poems came out separately uh, year by year just uh, around and through the Second World War and when she was holding that poem, she was living in a continual terror, not just of the war, but of the fact that her brother, Peter, was uh, volunteering as a member of the RAF in Europe. And in fact, in 1941, he died. It was in 19... 40 and 1941 that of course the blitz was shattering cities uh, across Britain and most of all London and it was in London that my father grew up uh, along with his sisters and his mother and father in the East End particularly dangerous place to be during the blitz and he never really spoke about it uh, in all the time I knew him until 19. 89 but in his memoirs which he left behind he wrote about taking his ukulele down into the shelters at night uh, while his friend kept time on a tin can to get people to sing and keep their spirits up uh, and he pretty much said just that and well we carried on because what else could you do the other thing they could do was realize that perhaps their time was up before very long and my grandfather had a strange premonition one night, which may be the only reason I'm sitting here speaking to you and writing books nowadays. My father wanted to go and spend the night in uh, his friend's air raid shelter. It may have been the friend with whom he played music down in the uh, underground at times. And my grandfather decided, no, this wasn't safe. And in the morning, the shelter was found to be flattened and everyone inside it killed. Presently, my grandfather walked out of London one night to a place called St. Albans, about 30 miles away, and in the morning he came back, and after a round trip of about 60 miles, declared, pack up, we're moving. So it was that my father uh, grew up the rest of his uh, life in St. Albans, and he met there the Hudson family, my current godmother, Liza Heller, uh, for whom I think he wrote a poem. My father was a remarkable poet in his own right, and I'll be reading some of his poems later on. And he would have met also Elizabeth Hudson, 
who was born in 1916 during another war uh, and who was young now during the terrors of the Second World War. And it caused her brother to lose his life, Peter, and it then caused her other brother, Francis, to change his mind about his early beliefs as a conscientious objector. He was working uh, as a farm labourer in Lincolnshire at the start of the war. And after his brother was killed uh, in a plane accident in 1941, Francis went to France and became a spy. Uh, he was a very, very good one by all accounts. You can read his obituary in The Guardian and read about him in many other places, uh, not least in view of the fact that he was six foot four in his socks and likely to stand out. He was flagged down at one point in his car by a German patrol early on in his spying career. After the Germans had had a peek in the back of the car, they waved him on, much to his relief as the boot of the car was full of guns. He survived in the SOE in an occupied France, sending tremendous number of coded messages until August 1944, when he was caught bang to rights with uh, a fellow spy. And they found themselves in prison in Digne in France for three days or so, expecting every moment to be taken out and shot. At one point in the prison, Francis heard someone under the walls humming a favourite song of his, Frankie and Johnny, and he responded by humming it back. Uh, the two people probably knowing each other through this tune. And one of them was an extraordinary woman, Polish Jewish, uh, the greatest female spy of the war, and probably one of the greatest spies of the war per se, grew up as Christina Scarbeck in Poland, became naturalised as Christine Granville. And I'm also holding in my hands today uh, a wonderful biography by a distinguished woman in her own right, Madeleine Masson. And Madeleine Masson was leaving her native South Africa in 1952 on a steamship when she noticed an interesting stewardess who was attending on her through the long voyage back to Southampton and spoke to her a little, but found a very reserved, remarkable, striking woman with a peculiar kind of psychic aura about her. And she wanted to uh, say goodbye and leave her a tip when she reached Southampton, but found that the woman had already left the ship, asking after her, found out that her name was Christine Granville. And she found out a few hours later in the papers that Christine Granville had just been murdered. This was the tragic end of an absolutely extraordinary life captured in her biography, which I'll be talking about in much more detail in a little while. Well, to take up the thread of Francis and Christine uh, as they were humming to each other around the prison walls. I knew nothing about Elizabeth's brother. In all the time I knew her, I used to have very long spellbinding conversations with her. They were supposed to last about an hour because we believed that being absolutely stone deaf, lip reading tired her out. Uh, but they always kind of segued into four hours or more until my mother would ring up and say, where are you? So she'd be back three hours ago. It was only after Elizabeth died uh, that I found out about her brother, Francis, and what had happened to him during his spying career in France. 
He was taken out of Dina prison uh, with somebody else. We'll talk about in more detail, another remarkable character a bit later on, after about three days and expected to be shot at any moment. Uh, who's driven out of the compound and presently encountered Christine. But as she did acknowledge him, he imagined that she too was a prisoner of their SS commander, Vane. Uh, and they were all about to be shot until they drove to a riverside where Vane took off his uniform and they all helped him bury it, at which the picture rather changed its frame. And he realised to his astonishment that he was free. Uh, he would go on to die in his bed about 90 after a very distinguished career as a teacher and a headmaster. Many people remembered him uh, as former students after he died. And what happened was this, Christine Skarbek had lied, bullied and bribed the head of the SS, uh, the Gestapo there, Vane, uh, for three hours uh, until he relented and set free for a bribe of two million francs, uh, Francis Camer, and also his cellmate, who we'll talk about later on. So, yes, strange chance coincidences uh, and what you might call karma woven through uh, time from 2023 here today back to the war the blitz and leaving us now with T.S. Eliot's second poem uh, in this beautiful edition that Elizabeth was holding in her hands during the war this is East Coker in my beginning is my end. In succession, houses rise and fall, crumble, are extended, are removed, destroyed, restored, or in their place is an open field or a factory or a bypass. Old stone to new building, old timber to new fires, old fires to ashes and ashes to the earth, which is already flesh, fur and feces, bone of man and beast, cornstalk and leaf, Houses live and die. There is a time for building and a time for living and for generation and a time for the wind to break the loosened pane and to shake the wainscot where the field mouse trots and to shake the tattered arras woven with a silent motto. In my beginning is my end. Now the light falls across the open field, leaving the deep lane shuttered with branches dark in the afternoon where you lean against a bank while a van passes and the deep lane insists on the direction into the village, in the electric heat, hypnotised. In a warm haze, the sultry light is absorbed, not refracted by grey stone. The dahlias sleep in the empty silence. Wait for the early owl. In that open field, if you do not come too close, if you do not come too close. On a summer midnight you can hear the music of the weak pipe and the little drum and see them dancing around the bonfire, the association of man and woman in dancing, signifying matrimony, a dignified and commodious sacrament. Two and two, necessary conjunction, holding each other by the hand or the arm, which betokeneth concord, round and round the fire leaping through the flames or joined in circles. Rustically solemn or in rustic laughter, lifting heavy feet in clumsy shoes, earth feet, loam feet, 
lifted in country mirth, mirth of those long since under earth nourishing the corn. Keeping time, keeping the rhythm in their dancing as in their living, in the living seasons, the time of the seasons and the constellations, the time of milking, the time of harvest, the time of the coupling of man and woman, and that of beasts, feet rising and falling, eating and drinking, dung and death. Dawn points and another day prepares for heat and silence. Out at sea the dawn wind wrinkles and slides. I am here or there or elsewhere in my beginning. Two. What is the late November doing with the disturbance of the spring and creatures of the summer heat? And snowdrops writhing under feet and hollyhocks that aim too high, red into grey and tumble down, late roses filled with early snow. Thunder rolled by the rolling stars simulates triumphal cars. Deployed in constellated wars, scorpion fights against the sun. Until the sun and moon go down, comets weep and leonids fly, hunt the heavens and the plains, whirled in a vortex that shall bring the world to that destructive fire which burns before the ice cap rains. That was a way of putting it, not very satisfactory, a periphrastic study in a worn out poetical fashion leaving one still with the intolerable wrestle with words and meanings. The poetry does not matter. It was not, to start again, what one had expected. What was to be the value of the long looked forward to, long hoped for calm, the autumnal serenity and the wisdom of age? Had they deceived us or deceived themselves, the quiet-voiced elders, bequeathing us merely a recipe, a receipt for deceit? The serenity only a deliberate hebitude, the wisdom only the knowledge of dead secrets useless in the darkness into which they peered or from which they turned their eyes. There is, it seems to us, at best only a limited value in the knowledge derived from experience. The knowledge imposes a pattern and falsifies, for the pattern is new in every moment, and every moment is a new and shocking valuation of all we have been. We are only undeceived of that which, deceiving, could no longer harm. In the middle, not only in the middle of the way, but all the way in a dark wood, in a bramble, on the edge of a grimpen, where is no secure foothold, and menaced by monsters, fancy lights, risking enchantment. Do not let me hear of the wisdom of old men, but rather of their folly, their fear of fear and frenzy, their fear of possession, of belonging to another or to others or to God. The only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. Humility is endless. The houses are all gone under the sea. The dancers are all gone under the hill. Three. Oh, dark, dark, dark. They all go into the dark the vacant interstellar spaces the vacant into the vacant the captains merchant bankers eminent men of letters the generous patrons of art the statesmen and the rulers distinguished civil servants chairman of many committees industrial lords and petty contractors all go into the dark and dark the sun and moon and the almanac to goffer and the stock exchange gazette the directory of directors 
and cold the sense and lost the motive of action. And we all go with them into the silent funeral, nobody's funeral, for there is no one to bury. I said to my soul, be still and let the dark come upon you, which shall be the darkness of God, as in a theatre the lights are extinguished for the scene to be changed with a hollow rumble of wings, with a movement of darkness on darkness. And we know that the hills and the trees, the distant panorama, and the bold imposing facade are all being rolled away. Or as when an underground train in the tube stops too long between stations and the conversation rises and slowly fades into silence and you see behind every face the mental emptiness deepen, leaving only the growing terror of nothing to think about. Or when under ether the mind is conscious but conscious of nothing, I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope, for hope would be wrong, hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love, for love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. Wait without thought, for you are not ready for thought. So the darkness shall be the light, and the stillness the dancing. Whisper of running streams and winter lightning, the wild thyme unseen and the wild strawberry, the laughter in the garden, echoed ecstasy not lost but requiring pointing to the agony of death and rebirth. You say I am repeating something I've said before. I shall say it again. Shall I say it again? In order to arrive there, to arrive where you are, to get from where you are not, you must go by a way wherein there is no ecstasy. In order to arrive at what you do not know, you must go by a way which is the way of ignorance. In order to possess what you do not possess, you must go by the way of dispossession. In order to arrive at what you are not, you must go through the way in which you are not. And what you do not know is the only thing you know. And what you own is what you do not own. And where you are is where you are not. Four. The wounded surgeon plies the steel that questions the distempered part. Beneath the bleeding hands we feel the sharp compassion of the healer's art, resolving the enigma of the fever chart. Our only health is the disease if we obey the dying nurse, whose constant care is not to please, but to remind of our and Adam's curse, and that to be restored our sickness must grow worse. The whole earth is our hospital, endowed by the ruined millionaire, wherein, if we do well, we shall die of the absolute paternal care that will not leave us, but prevents us everywhere. The chill ascends from feet to knees, the fever sings in mental wires. If to be warmed, then I must freeze and quake in frigid purgatorial fires, of which the flame is roses and the smoke is briars. The dripping blood, our only drink, the bloody flesh, our only food, in spite of which we like to think that we are sound, substantial flesh and blood. Again, in spite of that, we call this Friday good. Five. So here I am in the middle way, having had 20 years, 
20 years, largely wasted the years of l'entre-deux-guerres, trying to learn to use words, and every attempt is a wholly new start and a different kind of failure, because one has only learned to get the better of words for the thing one no longer has to say, or the way in which one is no longer disposed to say it. And so each venture is a new beginning, arrayed on the inarticulate with shabby equipment always deteriorating in the general mess of imprecision of feeling, undisciplined squads of emotion, and what there is to conquer by strength and submission has already been discovered once or twice or several times by men whom one cannot hope to emulate. But there is no competition, there is only the fight to recover what has been lost and found and lost again and again. And now under conditions that seem unpropitious, but perhaps neither gain nor loss, for us there is only the trying. The rest is not our business. Home is where one starts from. As we grow, grow older, the world becomes stranger, the pattern more complicated of dead and living. Not the intense moment isolated with no before and after, but a lifetime burning in every moment, and not the lifetime of one man only, but of old stones that cannot be deciphered. There is a time for the evening under starlight, a time for the evening under lamplight, the evening with the photograph album. Love is most nearly itself when here and now cease to matter. Old men ought to be explorers here or there, does not matter, we must be still and still moving into another intensity for a further union, a deeper communion, through the dark cold and the empty desolation, the wave cry, the wind cry, the vast waters of the petrol and the porpoise. In my end is my beginning. Many thanks for listening. This was Dark Histories from the Secret University, T.S. Eliot's East Coker, second of the four quartets.